Welcome to the Connect service tonight. I was uh, tempted, we're going through a study called Redeeming Marriage, and what a beautiful thought that we're going to discuss in detail tonight. But I thought about titling this The State of the Union, but I was afraid I might lose a few of you based on recent uh, events. But it really is for us to consider tonight the state of our unions. You know, it's amazing to me that I live in a time and in a culture where I have to say when I'm talking about marriage, you understand I mean a marriage between a man and a woman. It's amazing to me that we have to, we have to say, no, I mean a, a lifelong commitment. It's amazing to me, but then again, I think about it, and it's not really Because you see, the same things that has caused our culture to move and to shift reside within my heart as well. I don't fly above it, but I'm in the midst of the culture that we live. You know, today we have a grave and difficult problem with ourselves. You know, I've thought about many illustrations. I don't know if you guys do this. When you you read through the Bible, there's just something shocking that stands out to you. Maybe it just... It comes on you and you see it for the first time. But I remember when I was reading through Isaiah. And Isaiah can be a a daunting challenge, especially to get all the way through to chapter 50. But in chapter 50, verse 11, there's some beautiful wisdom that God lays out in terms of this idea of thinking of the world in terms of our own way. So it's uh, Isaiah chapter 50, verses 10 and 11. The Word of God says, Who among you fears the Lord and obeys the voice of his servant? Let him walk, let him who walks in darkness and has no light, listen to this, trust in the name of the Lord and rely on his God. Listen to the the alternative. But behold, all you who kindle a fire, who equip yourself with burning torches, you walk by the light of your fire and by the torches that you have kindled, this you have from my hand you shall lie down in torment. What an amazing picture. It's like saying, look, you're given the light of the noonday sun, but what we choose to live by is to run to darkness and scratch out a little fire, put it on a torch, and wander out. What an image. What an image. And you know, that's where God finds all of us wandering about with our little torch held high, that never is intended to light our way. You know, in the context of marriage, um, and I'm going to give a disclaimer. So I was coming tonight, and I was printing out my lesson. I had it all ready to go. And if you ever had this experience, your printer ribbon has nothing left. So I got about a page and a half and a bunch of dashed lines, and I said, "Uh uh-oh. And so this is, uh, I'm not an iPad-centric kind of guy, so when I look Uh, confused and uh, nervous, it's because I have lost my place. So we'll get that out of the way right up front. But, uh, But as we think about these waving our torches, I think of a husband and a wife who have unified but have no Christ light. And there they are with their little torches, walking out into the darkness, Perhaps children following behind him, trying to stay in the light that they can generate, but truly without hope. You know, last week, 
Pastor John did such a beautiful job reminding us of how God is the creator. It's God's idea for marriage. Think about this one, although maybe not for too long. It's God's creation for the sexual relationship. That was God's idea. We didn't come up with that. We didn't come up with this idea of a man leaving his parents, joining with a woman to be his help, his companion, of a husband loving his wife more than he loves himself. We didn't conceive of that. That wasn't conceived in the, in the, the halls of philosophy. It wasn't written in the journals of psychology. It was in the mind in the presence of Almighty God. And so for us, when we look at the oneness that God creates, when we say it is this union, it is God who's ordained this union. I really did try to picture, I hope you did last week too, about what Pastor John said about the, the, the way a covenant was sealed. And I can't, I mean, the, the idea of a marriage ceremony, including severing an animal and laying it and having the bride and groom pass through it, although it's gory, might be a really good idea. You know, I don't know if it'll catch on with marriage planners, but, but the idea is so true. It's to say that which has been done this day before God in a covenant cannot, will not be undone. So when we forge ahead and when we, when we talk about marriage these next couple weeks, we're talking about not man's conception. We're not talking about till uh, so long as we both shall love. We're not talking about so long as we both agree. We're talking about that abiding covenant, abiding covenant before an almighty God. But we have a problem because you and I in marriage are united with selfish sinners. And we bring to the table our selfishness and sin. You see, the truth remains that although the grace of God pours out, we wander off into this world. Can you imagine the young couple leaving on their honeymoon, cans clanging behind the car, driving off with, with feelings of love and emotion? Um, and don't do what I did. I stopped and washed the car before we left on our honeymoon, and I still hear about that uh, to this day. But if you leave tune on an engine... While you're gone, it's going to ruin the car. So I, I technically still remain right. But, uh, but, but the idea remains, did any of you, the day you left from the ceremony, have an idea of what you were getting into? <laughs> I hope my wife does not hear this later. But, but think about this. Can, can you imagine, can you imagine if somebody would have told you how things would play out? Somebody would have written out, showed you a couple clips from the future could you have possibly imagined saying, sign me up for that? Now, there's days of great beauty and of great wonder and great affection. But there's tough days, too. There's tough days you face as a couple, and there's tough days you face because you're a couple. <laughs> and so that's the world we're going out into. And the truth remains, we need God's grace. So in saying that, sin always, always, always puts you at the center of the throne of a very small kingdom of your own. It always says, seek your will, your wants, 
your needs, your ways, your pleasures. Just think about it. Think about your best week, your favorite week that you've ever had. And I guarantee you, mine are defined by, I got some great things I wanted. The truth is, we also look at relationships that way. What is in it for me? Perhaps friendships? And sadly, our marriages, we approach what's in it for me. Now, I'm leveraging a lot from Paul Tripp's book, so I want to put that up front. And one of the things he said in that book that I thought was so maybe hard to hear for a young couple, but so honest, is that loving, you know, exuberant feeling can be an outworking of selfishness. I'm not saying it always is, but it can be. We love the feeling of feeling love because we like the way we feel. And so we go into this, you know, <laughs> I love this. I've heard uh, Paul Tripp talking on marriage and he said, I want chocolate at an arm's reach. You know, that's, 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 my, that's how much I want my desires. For me, it would be I want Indian food at arm's reach. And I know, my wife feels the same way about that. Um, I like, I would love to drive to work down Research Park and approach the gate of Redstone where there's only a gate for me. And then, I've, I've, I put this in the suggestion box, by the way, as well. It <laughs> <Kate A> works. <laughs> and then once I arrive there, there's fanfare from teammates and coworkers who are ready to support me in what I need to get done. And I have leadership who is ready and waiting to reward me for the, the honor do me. <laughs> so it's exactly how I view the world. If, if I'm honest, we, we never say that. We would never walk in and say that. But the truth is, that's really what's inside a lot of times, is that desire to have what we want. And I'm telling you, which one of us wants to hear no to something we really, really want? Had that experience with your husband and wife where you found it's a great deal, right? It's a used John Deere tractor that is, that's, a, that's a great deal. For, for uh, Kristen back there. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a good deal. This is the best thing I could possibly do with our resources. And your significant other says, yeah, but we, really, we just really shouldn't do that right now. Oh, and then the anger builds. How could you step in front of my kingdom? The amazing truth is none of us, none of us overcome the, the self-centered, sinful nature without the amazing and true grace of God. That is the only way. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 15. If you have your Bibles, I apologize for the screens. That's on me, not the guys in the back. But if you would, turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 15. I'll give you just a moment. Paul, writing to the Corinthians church, says this in verse 15. He says, and he, of Christ, died for all. And those who live may no longer live for what? For themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. You see, we're always searching, grabbing, and longing to be satisfied, to have our way satisfied by an earth and everything in it that can never satisfy. And freedom from this only comes through the blood of Jesus Christ. He's the only one that frees us from self. 
So in the next few weeks, we're going to be talking about marriage, right? How, how We're bringing all of this into it. We know it's a design and mind and concept of God. We know that we bring it to it to sinners. But the great truth is God has a plan. God has a will for your marriage and for your life. And what we'll endeavor to do, and I'm so thankful, I don't know if you guys have have made a habit of marriage conferences, marriage seminars, marriage, um, Wendy and I probably, we could have attended more, but we've been through our fair share. And, you you know, sometimes you leave edified, grown, or whatever, but but a lot of times I feel like, boy, I got to do a lot more stuff, you know, plan more date nights and you know, depart, you know, every year out of the country. I just can't do all that. You know, it's, it's not going to, you know, I just, I got this list of things I've got to do that seem impossible. They really do. Um, I laugh at this because I do see Winnie in the bag. She'll tell you this is true. So my idea one time was to get a bunch of books, and we're both going to study these books. And one was written for, like, the, like here, here's for a man to understand your wife, right? And then there was a companion book, like, here's for a, what's the other way around? A woman to understand her husband. There you go. And so, you know, in this book, you know, I read the one, I read the one for the woman about the man, right? Because I want to see what it said, right? And boy, I took Wendy's copy and I was underlining and (laughs) circling and starring things. And I think she's still scarred by (laughs) that experience. But because it's like, if you only could think the way I think, Pastor John said this last week, so good. If you could only think the way I think, if you could only be like me, this would be great. And so, so again, that's not, in the next few weeks, what we're talking about. We're not talking about gimmicks. We're not talking about self-help. In fact, we bring very little to the table uh, in what we're talking about, except our willingness to follow after the Holy Spirit. And so, you know, as we see that, as we look at these commitments, and there'll be six of them through the week, this will be the first uh, set of those, I want this idea to, to kind of, uh, and not to play the pun here, but get rooted in your minds of Galatians chapter 6, verse 7, which so often has been read, but the gravity of it I, I failed to, to, to grab hold of myself, and I wonder if we do, but it says, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he reap. You can fight that. You can say it's not true. You can try to live your own way. You can try to conduct a marriage sowing everything the world teaches, everything your selfishness, your sin brings to the table, and you will reap. <laughs> I will reap what we've sown. So as we look at that, that it always comes across as a negative. Even my tone of voice, whatsoever we sow, so shall we reap. And it's this terrifying you know, demeanor and a, and a fist pound on a pulpit. But there's a beautiful side to that. You can plant good seeds. And so that's what these commitments are. It's really the act of us taking a look at our marriages and saying, how is it, God, that we can commit ourselves to you, commit ourselves to one another, and sow good seed? So commitment one is this, and I'll, and I'll, I'll repeat it a couple times if you're taking notes. It's, it's simply this. We give ourselves to a regular lifestyle of confession and forgiveness. And I'll pause there. We give ourselves to a regular lifestyle of confession and forgiveness. So the first part of that that section is speaking of 
coming clean, confessing. Those are uncomfortable ideas. They're uncomfortable words. I don't know what I don't know what experience. I thought about this myself, and I thought of quite a few, by the way. Uh, experiences when I was put on the spot to confess. Unfortunately, most of my young life, it's when there was no shadow of a doubt, the confession was an afterthought, but I couldn't think of any other way to lie or hide or cheat or excuse or get out, and hence was hemmed in the confession. That's not really what we're talking about tonight. We're talking about the act of grace in our life that leads us as married people to a pattern of confession between a husband and a wife. Now you say, what could we possibly have to confess, right? You know, what, what could we possibly think of on a daily basis if I thought down all the things that I've done, all the selfish moments, all those things, and the real truth is we require the grace of God to lead us and to guide us in the first aspect of what grace brings to, confession, to, to our confession is the ability to know right from wrong. You know, it's not just innately born in us, although we're born with a sense of conscience, a sense of rightness, there's a sense of, in which we can recognize truth. We are spiritually dead, but it's the grace of God that quickens our spirit through his sovereignty and his plan to awake us to right and wrong. God, in his all-knowing wisdom, provided his word, which is a mirror to us. I thought about this. There's a conversation that often <laughs> happens with my son, um, pretty, pretty routinely, where I'll say something like this. Uh, I wrote it down so I wouldn't mis misquote myself. Son, at any point this morning, have you perhaps glanced at a mirror? You know, and he's like, oh, it's not great, you know. Uh, it, hair sticking up, collar all messed up, shirt not matching pants, pants high water, pants looking like wrinkled up foil, and I think, how can you look at yourself and feel ready to meet the day? There's no way you have seen this. Sadly, I think he has. But the great danger for all of us, though, is that we lack this is hard to think about. We lack spiritual discernment to see ourselves as we really are. We lack the spiritual discernment, relationship, grace-driven, Holy Spirit-empowered vision of ourselves to accurately view ourselves. That only comes through the grace of God. You see, without that, it's hard for us to confess because we have no measure to measure ourselves by. And where do we default when we measure ourselves? Always the fair rule, right? Always the one that reflects on ourselves rightly. We also have to face the fact that there is indwelling sin in us. There's indwelling sin in us. That as tempted as we are to make the great accusation against the world and all things external and to bring it to our marriages against our spouse as the, the root of our problems and our and uh, why we're distracted and doing the wrong thing, we're tempted always to create this great fallacy that problems exist external to us. They're external. They're not rooted in us. You know, it can't possibly be the case. But God's grace says, 
No, it's on the inside. Um, again, growing up in a Christian home, I had many opportunities for my, my mom to quote, I think, the entire book of Proverbs, probably on a monthly basis. Um, and she would always say something like this to me. She'd say, John, I've been praying for you that you don't harden your conscience. I used to hate it. I mean, I would, especially 14, 15 years old, I used to hate hearing those words from her. I said, what you, what's wrong with me? How can my conscience not be where it needs to be? You know, I, I'm a faithful attender. I'm, you know, all these things that I had listed on my good qualities. And yet it's true. If we are not careful, if it yet for the grace of God, our conscience is seared. It's not sensitive to what's right and what's wrong. And I'll tell you the truth. We fail to feel the weight not of our, our spouse's issues, problems, sin, but of our own. We fail to recognize it. We need a properly functioning uh, conscience. The other thing that protects us from is self-righteousness. Self-righteousness is the idea that in some way, I bring something to the righteousness table on my own. There's, there's just gotta be something in me that can work out, be good enough, Bring something to the table. And you know what? I'm a lot better than my wife. You know, she's the problem. If, you know what? And I'd love to say I've never said anything like this, but she'll tell you it's true. I might have said something like, you know how many women would love to be married to a man like me? <laughs> I know you guys are more spiritual than I would never, ever say something like that. Gosh, how embarrassing, how self-righteous that is. Wow. But it's honest, and it's true when we don't apply the grace of God to our lives. Listen to this one. The ability to listen and consider criticism and rebuke. What often is our response to criticism? What are some responses? The wall goes up, right? Defensive. And if that's not enough, anger proceeds. What else? Shut down, that's right. Excuses, we fail to be able to listen to what we're hearing, to listen to perspective. I'll tell you, one of the most godly attributes of humility is to be able to receive and listen to criticism. None of us like it, none of us like it, but by the grace of God, we can learn from it and grow towards a confession spirit. This one is very true, been very true in my life. We are not paralyzed by the thoughts of regret and fear. You see, confession will bring this thought. If, if I were to say right now, think of something that's hard for you to tell your wife or your husband right now. And you think about going and confessing that later tonight. Just walk in and you're going to confess something later tonight. You don't want to. What's going to inspire in your heart, what's going to start rising up is, if I say this, if I let her know, if I let her see behind the veil, or if I let him see who I really am, how I really feel, what will be the result of that? It could be you start seeing the result of that yourself, and it's facing the regret of those choices that you've made. Guys, I'm not only talking about things like you know, pornography or infidelity. I'm talking about anger. For you to look at your anger and think, what has my anger done in this home? What is my self-centeredness, my selfishness? What's it done in this home? What's my desire for comfort and laziness done in this home? And that regret 
And that fear, if we confess those things, if we let it be seen for who we are, keeps us paralyzed. But the grace of God will push beyond the fear and the regret. And here's why. The last aspect that grace brings is it allows you to face who you really are knowing that you have a Savior who has taken your guilt and taken your shame on himself. You see how foolish is it? Uh, Think about this. I, I think about these kind of things a lot. If I believe that Jesus Christ bore upon him all my iniquity, all my sin, but yet when I'm having a conversation with my wife, I've got to put up a defense that it can't possibly be true that I'm sinful. Do you see how foolish that is? you see how foolish? It, it makes no sense that we do it. But because we ignore the grace that God so freely gives to say, look, live and be who you are. Face who you are. Because I have bore your iniquity. I have taken that. Confess to one another. Love one another. Get it out in the open. You see, and out of that confession, there's all these hindrances, that the desire to protect ourselves, to put up a wall, to put up a mask. These happen in relationships all over, but particularly between a married husband and wife. But let's talk about what can be the outcome of confession. When I'm saying confession, I'm saying you search God's word. You spend time in prayer. You listen to the feedback from your your, your spouse, and you say, in what areas of my life am I sinful? And then as a routine pattern, you go and you make confession to one another. It's not a hard concept, but man, what, which one of us is that a routine process? And I tell you, we wonder why, why some of these relationships start to become anxious, why they start to become animosity between two people who have committed themselves together. But listen to this. Confession drives honesty that, listen, builds the probably the singular most um, needed quality in a marriage, trust. It's when you can trust that the one you are married to, the one you're committed to, is not hiding, is not too pridefully defiant to admit wrong, but is willing to come to you, say who they are, and live openly with you. And likewise, you with them. It brings, again, that God-given trust and provision between husband and wife. The other thing it does is as, as that record of wrong begins to build between relationships, confession is like taking out the trash. And I hate to be so coarse in saying that, but it's true. It's taking those things off and saying, these things, are I'm putting them in the open. I'm bringing light on them. They're not going to grow in the corners. They're not going to be stuffed under somewhere. They're going to be brought to the light. It removes baggage and frees us from our, from our past between one another. Confess, confession drives intimacy in marriage. Again, not necessarily the physical intimacy we think of associated with that word, but a willingness to drop the veil. I tell you what, I wonder sometimes, think about it, is there anybody who really knows you? Is there anybody who really knows you? 
you're willing to really share how you feel, really share what your struggles are, really share what it is you're dealing with in life. And I tell you what, through confession, that can be your spouse. There's no veil. There's no tear between the two. The two are one. And I'm telling you what, putting on this ring, jointly reaching forward and lighting the flame of a unity candle will not do that. But through confession in the grace of God, it will. So the next point is the canceling of debts. Another word for that we could simply say is forgiveness. Um, I went back and forth on whether to share this illustration, but I think I'll go ahead. Um, I had a I had an episode in college where I did not make the wisest choice. Um, In so doing, the result of my choices were that I was removed from a semester and my grades erased. Now, that might sound bad to you, except my GPA went up. Uh, So, I had violated some of the ethics rules of the college uh, by going to an event where there was drinking, which was not allowed. It's an agreement I had signed up to, full well knowing. And I had broken the rules and and received the punishment in their doing uh, uh, for that action. But there was a price to be paid for that decision to the tune of about $12,000 that was my dad's bill to pay. Well, was a bill to pay. ends up becoming my dad's bill to pay. And I remember through that experience, and and again, this is not to elevate my dad. This is to show that my dad chose to cancel my debt. He chose to take that $12,000, which I should have worked a full summer or two or three for, and never ask for it in return. Not only that, I cost him a debt of embarrassment. I hurt many people in my life in so doing but it's a debt I never had to pay because somebody else paid for it. So when we're talking about canceling debt, when we're talking about not, you know, you know uh, not taking the vengeance that is ours, that's kind of what we're talking about. But we talked about harvest. We talked about planting seeds. So let's just for a brief moment consider what are the plants and the fruit that grow from unforgiveness or lack of confession. It is impossible, it is absolutely impossible for me to think of all the different broad roads that sin and marriage can take you down. Wide is the path, broad is the way that leads to destruction. However, we can see patterns form when there is a lack of forgiveness or the, or the counterpart sister to it, bitterness. Again, Paul Tripp, in in his writing, lays out a scenario where a young couple come into marriage starry-eyed, happy to be with one another, and they are shocked to discover that there is hurt from another sinner, selfish counterpart that they have married. And that hurt is surprising at first. It can be shocking. And hurt can turn into judgment. Hurt can turn into blame. And before you know it, a root has started to shoot out of a seed of unforgiveness. And that root is bitterness. And what happens is the pattern of it's uncomfortable to deal with, with unforgiveness. It's, you can't stay in a constant state of anxiety and animosity. And so what do we do? We become comfortable with unforgiveness. 
it becomes okay to say, you know, we don't need to talk about this anymore. I understand your point. You understand mine. We're good. And silence prevails. We're okay with going to sleep, not talking to one another. We're okay to maybe spend a couple days of silent treatment towards the other one. No forgiveness. But in so doing, never dealing with problems. And since they're never brought into the light, they begin to stack up. I had an experience of uh, uh, working for the Navy and being around a a lot of guys that have been on ships for a a lot of years. And one of the guys told me the most interesting fact about the old uh, steamships that were powered by coal. And there was a, a huge problem that could occur inside the coal heap on the ship that was a danger to the entire ship that they didn't even know existed. And that is, if you take a big pile of coal, and this happened today, take a big pile of coal, there can be a fire burning down in the depths of that heap, but it never does anything until the surface is scraped off. And then it can result in a catastrophic loss to those around. Some of our, our marriages are like that with unforgiveness. There's this stacking heap of unforgiveness. There's a stacking heap of wrong. And boy, when that surface is bumped, then flashes. Then flashes the attack. Then flashes the anger. But sometimes we can move past that. And what begins to happen is a nurturing. I mean, think about that. Think of things you nurture. Think about like feeding a little baby squirrel that's wandered into your yard. You start to feed it. You start to give it a little bit more. And it begins to grow. It begins to grow. And so does that dislike, that discord, because you're continuing to feed it with your thoughts, with the unforgiveness, and the plant begins to start really bearing fruit. That fruit can be all manner of destruction in your marriage, all manner of destruction. But a couple that we'll look at is it can cause your eye to start shifting to those around you. You start noticing those Facebook posts a little bit more of those perfect date nights. You start thinking, why is my marriage not like that? Well, didn't you see where he took her? Do you see, you know, how, you know, she treats him? I don't know, something like that. You see, we start looking around us. We start looking to counterparts. We start envisioning. And in in fact, most cases, we're making stuff up. We're imagining how it is. They couldn't possibly have it as bad as us. And that bitterness grows into envy, and then it grows into a fantasy of escape. And I'm telling you, a fantasy of escape may not be acted on where you act outside of your marriage. But those fantasies are poison, poison to your affection and relationship with your spouse. Wendy and I had an opportunity to serve as uh, student leaders, oh my goodness, I think it's about 20 years ago. That is scary. And the fact that I was leading anyone 20 years, (laughs) much less now, is also terrifying. Uh, But but we had an opportunity to be uh, student leaders, and we had a young lady in our our group, and she was about 10th grade, if I remember right, 9th or 10th grade. And she approached us after one night. Um, I mean, you want to talk about one of the most sweet young ladies, just sweet disposition, sweet young lady, 
but she always saw this really this need to please in her. You know what I mean? She like if if you ask for a volunteer, she's gonna be the first one to go. You know, if you if you if you ask for somebody help, she's gonna be the first one to do it. You know, if you ask for a, for a question in class, she's gonna be the first one to try to give the right answer. This desire to please. And she came up to us that night and and tears in her eyes, absolutely broken, and she said, "My parents don't love one another." Now, this is, a, this is a man, I'm just trying to describe who they were. I'm not, I'm not you know, calling them any different than, than myself. But they were, they were people that were, you know, we had three services at the time. They were there every service, sometimes early. Um, the, the dad would go down to the rescue mission and lead services down there. He would work with the people that were down and out in, in a genuine way. And the mom was faithful to many acts of services in there, but every interaction between the two of them was cutting. Every interaction, every look, sitting, you ever seen two people sit beside each other and you can tell they are miles apart? And that starts from that, that, that root that grew because forgiveness had no place in the marriage. Forgiveness had no place in the marriage. But yet they thought, we'll do a good thing for our kid. We're not gonna split up. We're just gonna not love each other and stay together. What a lie we tell ourselves to think that's what God designed. That's what God desired. The story proceeds that after she graduated high school, they went their separate ways. They acted upon that fantasy of being apart and separated. But they'd separated long before. Long before. So why would any of us ever choose that path? Why would we choose that path? What possible concept in this. Even out of self-preservation, why would you choose to live in a marriage and act that way? See, it's not always bad on the front end. Sometimes holding a debt over somebody, there's a little pleasure in it. Sometimes when you have the debt over somebody and they owe you something, there's a little power in it. Perhaps I can use that debt you owe me to have sway over getting what I want. But all those are delusions. They're self-swindling thoughts. They never, ever are in line with what God desires marriage to be. So what is forgiveness? It's not walking by wrong. It's not grin and bear it. It's not a hospitality smile and dying on the inside. It's none of these things. It's not being a doormat. It's not suffering in silence. It's not letting abuse pervade. You see, first forgiveness can come from a confrontation. Forgiveness can grow out of dissatisfaction in your marriage. Paul, makes this, this, Paul Tripp makes this point in his book so clear that moments of dissatisfaction shouldn't, shouldn't cause us to doubt whether God is working in our marriage. It could be exactly what God wants for your marriage, to wake you up, to wake me up. So it can come from confrontation. It also comes from genuine confession of the other one. It's near we can have forgiving thoughts in our heart, but it's difficult to forgive where there's no confession of the one who's wrong. 
And lastly, forgiveness is the grace-driven response to the truth and the power of the Holy Spirit. You see, forgiveness in its truest sense, the truest sense of what forgiveness is, is our response to the overwhelming grace and mercy of God through Jesus Christ. It is not a sweet disposition. It is not a winsome personality. It is where you are so overwhelmed by what Christ did for us that the only response that can flow out from my vision of what God has done is forgiveness to those around me. It's that which causes us to look at the way we've been wronged as light and temporary trials. That's easy on a Wednesday night to stand up and say. But I'm guessing there are betrayals. There are hurts. There are scars so deep in some of your life that you think, how could you stand up there and say that's light and temporary? How dare you say that? Because that's the way I feel. That's the way I feel when I look at those things until I turn my attention to the grace of the gospel of Jesus Christ uh, in my life. I want to close with an illustration. I really, really went around. I, I said this a lot about things I was going to say, but this one I really did think hard about. Um, because I don't want to emotionalize what I'm about to say. But I could not, I could not get past the beauty of forgiveness in action. It's been well, well known and publicized the life of Corey Ten Boom. Young woman living in uh, the time under Hitler's uh, regime in Holland who made a conscious decision along with her family to save Jewish people in their area and get them to freedom. And she not only would physically save them by, by providing safe passage, she would also uh, share the gospel, countless stories of young men and young women who stood before firing squads and in gas chambers recounted that it was because of the work of the, the Ten Boom family that they received Christ. Corey was betrayed by somebody that was asking that she had gone above and beyond to help, betrayed her and her family, her 85-year-old father, her sister Betsy, a brother, and many other of her family were thrown into a concentration camp. That's where we pick up in the story. Corey says this, the strength of, the source of our strength is Jesus Christ himself. And his cross shows us that we can accept suffering as a part of God's plan for this world. When I was in a concentration camp, one of the most terrible things that I had to go through was they stripped us of all our clothing and made us stand naked. The first time was the worst. And I said, Betsy, I cannot bear this. And it was if I saw Jesus in the Bible where they took his garments and they hanged him there naked. And I remembered he hung there for me, for my sins. And in my suffering, I understood a small fraction of the suffering of Jesus Christ, and it made me so thankful that I could bear my suffering. She says this, love so amazing, quoting the, the hymn, love so amazing, so divine, demands my life, my soul, my all. Following on with this. It was some time ago in Berlin, and there came a man to me and said, Ah, Miss Tinboom, I'm glad to see you. Don't you know me? She said, Suddenly I saw that man. He was the most cruel overseer in the concentration camp. That man said to me, I am now a Christian. I found Jesus, read the Bible, 
and I know that there's forgiveness for all the sins of the whole world, I also know for my sins that I'm forgiven for the cruelties that I have done. But then I ask for God's grace and the opportunity that I could ask one of my very victims forgiveness. And Fraulein Tin Boom, will you forgive me? She said, I could not. I remembered the suffering of my sister. And I could only hate him. And then I took one of those beautiful texts, one of those boundless resources in Romans chapter 5, verse 5, that says the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts through the Holy Spirit given to us. And she says, and I thanked, I thank you, Jesus, who brought into my heart the love through the Holy Spirit is given to me. And the Father, uh, the love that's stronger for, for this forgiveness, and listen to this. She said, and I was able to say, brother, give me your hand. And I shook it. And she said, in that moment, I felt God's love stream through my arms, she said this, you've never touched so the ocean of God's love than to forgive your enemies. She posed this question at the end of her talk. She says, can you forgive? No. No. She said, I can't either. But he can. Tonight, you may think there's things in your marriage that you cannot get over. It could be small irritations. It could be tragic moral failing. But I'm telling you, when we will look hard at the ever-present love of a Savior, and as we went through, as, as that line begins to shoot off where we see the depth of our depravity against the light and temporary nature of this world, forgiveness can reign. So tonight the challenge is, Will we commit our marriages, our lives, to a routine pattern, a routine pattern of confession and forgiveness?